Helping neurodiverse students access the curriculum can be tough. That's exactly why I brought Emily King to the Special Education Inner Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Witcher. And Emily, thank you for being here today. You're so welcome. Thank you. All right. So tell us, how did you end up at an IEP table? Okay. So initially I was a school psychologist. Um, my doctor's in school psychology. And so as a young school psychologist, I was at many, many IEP tables before I became a parent. Um, and then I also became a parent with a child with an IEP. So later in my career, I sat on both sides of the IEP table at different times. Um, and then currently in private practice, I work with families um, and also consult with teachers on um, clinically coming up with like the best idea and then knowing that that has to be seen through a lens of the school and the IEP table um, and how we can translate that into everyday practice. And that's such a cool perspective of having, you know, a, the school perspective and then knowing what the school can and cannot do mm -hmm. uh, because it is a limited system. I mean, it's never going to be the end all and be all. Right. Um, and also it can be a confusing system to navigate. So just knowing that perspective is so good. In fact, we're going to talk about an acronym. We talk about alphabet soup all the time here and all the different things, all the different trainings, all the different strategies. And you're trained in a strategy that quite honestly, I wasn't familiar with until I was dropped into a classroom as a new teacher. And the parents were told they were going to get a certain style of teaching. And um, that was not the style I was trained in, nor was I told <laughs> that that was what the parents were told. So talk about conflict, right? So, um, so let's get on the same page here with one of the trainings that you have, and that's floor time, but explain the whole acronym and what it is. Yeah. So you may have heard the word floor time. You may have heard it, um, talked about as DIR slash floor time. So what the DIR means, D standing for development, um, I standing for individual differences and R standing for relationships. So floor time was um, developed um, way back in the seventies actually. And um, it's really hard to study floor time because it's more of an art and more of a relationship. And so there's not as much um, data around the progress of floor time. And that's why often um, ABA treatments will get more um, attention because there's tons of data on ABA. And so it is harder to study floor time and it, it should be because it is um, like a dance in the playroom with a child. So um, Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Serena Weeder are the two um, individuals who created floor time. And um, Dr. Greenspan has since passed away, but um, Dr. Serena Weeder developed the Perfectum Foundation, which is where my training came from. And there are also a couple of other ways to get trained in floor time. Floor time is not one specific therapy. It's a framework. So you could be an occupational therapist that quote unquote does floor time. You can be a speech language pathologist. I use floor time in my work with anxious children who are extremely rigid in their play because they're so anxious and often they're very demanding and they need to do something in a certain way. So I use floor time in the playroom in my therapy practice to help kids get more flexible, to help them um, present as less oppositional, but what's really happening is they're getting more flexible and entertaining that play is a back and forth and a socially reciprocal interaction. Um, and so often how this would look in a classroom is a teacher could use some DIR, DIR floor time principles in gaining engagement and access to that child through a relationship 
And then once the relationship is established, taking into account the individual differences, which are going to be things that we might talk about, like quirks. So things that are, um, you know, attention spans or things that are special interests, or perhaps there is a tick disorder or something that also might be individualized to that child that may get in the way of that um, learning that you're doing. And then, of course, um, thinking about their development a little bit more of a fluid approach than these developmental milestones or this child's in second grade, so they should be working on these standards. We have to think about, yes, they you know, might be able to read at a second grade level, but how much are they comprehending? So we're talking about all the asynchronous development that we often see in neurodivergent populations. And that's why I love the framework of DAR because every single child, as we know, is very different. Every teacher already knows that, but our curriculum is fairly standardized. Our system of education is fairly standardized. And so how do we help um, teachers know and understand that relationship focus and account for the really moving target of um, development and individual differences to then put that framework on top of what they're already trying to teach. It's complicated. It is. It's a lot of things. And a lot of people are like, whoa, like this is a lot like, you know, I'm here for some quick tips on a podcast and I just got <laughs> like a whole research theory on this. And I love it. I love that. So just, I, I want you um, if you're listening here as a parent, go do the research on what this is. Um, so if you do bring it to your team, and if you are a teacher who's hearing this and you're like, oh, this might be something that I could be interested in. And, and again, it's, I love that you called it principles and that it can be implemented in different ways. Um, just as the program promotes flexibility in relationships mm -hmm. itself and in, in implementing mm -hmm. it, I have found that, um, you know, if you're open-minded, um, you can actually use a lot of these principles in a flexible way. It's not like a true commit. Like I am running my classroom as a floor time classroom. Like it doesn't have to be that strict. So I'm going to encourage everybody, just go look it up, just learn something mm -hmm. new. Um, mm -hmm. You know, get some tidbits of, of how that might apply um, in your situation. But one of the pieces that I know that you are really focused on, and so we kind of prepared of where you're coming from and what that lens is that you're looking for is how to help students who think differently, who act differently, um, you know, than maybe the, you know, majority of their class. And, and I don't, you know, it's not general education as in typical students, you know, everybody has their own things, but some of our things are bigger than other students things and right. accessing the curriculum is a big deal. And, yeah. and there, a lot of times those things are preventing a child from accessing the mm -hmm. curriculum. And, and this is what I picture as that the student who like the teacher's like, I don't even know if I can have this child in my class, like boom, send them to special education room. And I'm like, no, no, there are things that we can do. There's yes. things that we, you know, that we can do in general education. We can do in special education. We could do in the hallway. We can do anywhere mm -hmm. um, to help a child access their school campus and community and education. So lay it on us, give us some things that, that we can do. Yeah, so start with getting curious about the patterns. So what are the patterns that you see? You know, big behaviors get our attention, but some of them are flukes. Some of them are because a child didn't sleep last night. Some of them are because a child's um, parent is traveling on a, a trip and their whole routine is thrown off. Those are things that are temporary that may spike certain behaviors. Um, or spike certain emotional responses, but what is the pattern? So we don't want to be overly alarmed or come up with a plan until we see a pattern of difficulty. And then we need to figure out 
why that pattern's happening. One um, really common thing that teachers and parents tell me is there is no pattern. This comes out of nowhere. This child is fine one day and not fine the next. There's always a pattern. However, that pattern may be internal to the child and we can't see it, such as fatigue or anxiety, or they're hungry at certain times of day. We need to get really curious. And this is where parent-teacher collaboration comes in. You are the team. You are really trying to reverse engineer this behavior and figure out when did it start how is this pattern happening? And this is, of course, the what a functional behavior assessment is all about. And when it's used in the best way it can be used, we can get to the bottom of, okay, this is happening. Often it's happening because of anxiety of some kind. We start with the behavior, but as um, if anyone's read any from Dr. Mona Della Hook, she talks about in her Beyond Behaviors book, of it, that's the tip of the iceberg. We have to get curious about what are all the things underneath. So get curious about the pattern. Once we figure out the pattern, we can start getting ahead in terms of preventing some of the things that are happening with some support or some little tweaks. Um, this is also where talking with the parent can be helpful because I always wanna know what is working. What's the pattern of the problematic behavior? And then what is working? Because what is working is what the student is capable of and there's some strengths in there somewhere. Then we need to merge the strengths with perhaps a weak something that's happening. Maybe it's something that needs to be scaffolded or we need um, a strategy to be put in place to help prevent some of these problematic behaviors we see. So we could probably go into talking about a few examples, but what does that bring up for you? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Just tell us. Um, yeah, you know, so let's talk about school refusal. Let's pick school refusal. Yeah, like the yeah. child is so anxious, they can't get out of the car. They're struggling with the transition between their homeschool family and their and their school, their home family and their school family. So how can we help a child trust and bridge that transition? So um, a traditional approach would be we rip off the band-aid, you know, we scoop up the child and we get them into the school building and they you know, they kind of cry it out and they're over it and they move on in, in 10, 15 minutes. So that is sometimes okay if the child is really resilient and they only do that for one day. <laughs> so once it becomes a pattern, we don't want to repeatedly be causing an anxiety spike. Something could be nurtured and supported better. Um, so we need a plan. So let's say that this child visually is doing really well with a routine at home. The parent has a list for them to get ready and out the door, but then we don't have any visuals at school. Well, if we know that a visual checklist, whether it's pictures or words, is working at home, um, our verbal kids don't necessarily are able to do things without visual supports. They trick us into thinking that, oh, they're, they're so verbal, they don't need visual supports. That's their verbal expression. Their visual receptive understanding can lower anxiety when they don't have to remember what they need to do. They don't have to organize it. And it's right there for them. Let's say a child can follow that strategy. Okay, let's mirror that strategy at school. Let's also maybe have some distraction items. So if this child is um, social and wants to be a helper, or even if they're not super social, but they do like to help other kids, let's give them a helping job that distracts them from the anxiety spike they feel going from the car into the classroom. Um, another strategy would be having a, um, 
if the if going from home to school, if the home environment is really safe and connected. And so um, the child has something that they can open and look at, but not until they get to their cubby in the classroom. And then they share that with their teacher. We're bridging the trust and the comfort for that child, which is going to support the anxiety as opposed to reacting to the behavior and the child's nervous system is already too heightened to be soothed at that point. And so we've got to get at it before we would get into the school building. So what is your suggestion for, you know, a a situation that already feels chaotic, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're already like, oops, this is already a pattern. Like should have had this podcast, you know, six months ago kind of thing. Like there's a lot of people that are going to listen to it and go, well, that's great, but I'm already in crisis. Mm -hmm. What is the strategy of where to start um, when you're already kind of down the road of it being a pattern? Yep. So if we're already down the road of it being a pattern, we need to slow down and reestablish the relationship. So no learning can really happen because kids are feeling Um, they could be feeling threatened. They could be feeling in danger. They could be feeling, and when I say in danger, I don't mean like they're truly in danger. I mean, their brains are telling them that this is a stressful environment. They can't learn. None of us can learn when our brains are feeling that way. So we've got to go all the way back to, first of all, get curious and kind of figure out the pattern and then think, okay, when is this child's brain and and nervous system stress throughout the day. Those are the moments in the day that that child needs more connection, more relationship, more safety. And you may have to slow down the curriculum a little bit for them to pause and reestablish that relationship and then help kind of engage them back into a positive feedback loop of learning. You know, learning is dysregulating. We are asked to do something that's hard for us And we have to trust the relationship we're in to take a risk. All learning is taking a risk. And every person that identifies with being a perfectionist has some memory of getting called on in class and they weren't prepared because in their mind, they had to do it perfectly. And that anxiety of taking that risk made them freeze. So that's another type of dynamic where um, sometimes a student might not have an externalizing behavior, but maybe internally kind of frozen, or we can't get the student to do anything. So I'll hear often they, a student is refusing, a student won't work. So we got to get curious about why. Is there a, a panic, internal panic feeling happening and they are going blank? They don't feel like they have the skills to do it. We just need to keep peeling the layers of demand back until the student feels capable. We ease that anxiety, we strengthen that relationship, and then we start adding back on the challenges as the student is ready to handle that emotionally. All right, so let's talk one last big strategy here. As a a family and a teacher, Um, are preparing to start a relationship. They're preparing for a new school year or maybe, you know, maybe a a placement didn't work out. So a child needs to Mm -hmm. go to a new placement. You know, we have fresh starts all the time. It's not Mm -hmm. just the beginning of the school year, especially in special education. There's, there's new beginnings all the time. What are your top, you know, couple of strategies or action steps that you should take when you're starting new? Right. So let's start with the the most traditional form of that, which would just be back to school in August. We want to make sure that our child's team 
and teachers want to make sure that their child's family, we know each other well. You know, I'm sure that we've, everyone listening to this is pretty familiar with just making sure their teacher has kind of a cheat sheet on how to get to know their child best. The IEP is a really long document. It doesn't necessarily have up-to-date information on a child's interests because that may have changed since you had the IEP meeting. So what is fresh in that child's world that's going to kind of hook in their engagement? That is the basis for these relationship builders at the beginning of the year. And so how can we let kids know that parents and teachers, we're on the same team. You can know that your teacher already knows about this thing and that thing. So when you talk about it or you show him or her this, they're going to know what you're talking about. And that can help kind of jumpstart that connection. So all of the the social work of that connection isn't on a child going in cold at the beginning of the year and isn't solely on the teacher either when she's got 25 of these relationships to make, right? So let's also say we've got a mid-year change. Usually something has happened for us to change mid-year. We have figured out that the current plan is not working and we have made a decision as a team or as a family to move to a different situation. One thing we do have to keep in mind is the child's perception of that to help them understand that this was not necessarily the best fit for you. It doesn't mean anyone has failed or not succeeded. Or I always talk about fit with kids, that that school or that classroom um, was overwhelming. Or we can think about from the child's perspective, what was what did not feel good about that educational experience. And we want to start there by saying, you're right, that was a loud environment or that was a lot of transition. So we've made a decision to make school better for you. And this is the new plan. So we're helping them, we're helping make that transition relevant to them. And then um, we hope, you know, as we've introduced this to kids, that the new staff, um, that what we're saying is going to be true. You know, we, we hope that we've made the best decisions we can for our kids that need to transition to maybe more supportive or more therapeutic environments. Um, And you can let kids know that people, because they don't always know that people are working behind the scenes for them, um, especially when they're younger. And so they can have a lot of fear about, well, we're changing schools, we're doing all this big stuff, and is it just going to be the same? We might need to work with with them on um, social stories and visuals and visiting a school and taking pictures and helping them process the space and the building and the schedule and the community before we add people into the mix. So that's my number one strategy for transition of a new place. How does your child or your student process information best? Some need video, some need pictures, some need to actually walk the hallways on a schedule. Um, And then how can we layer in their interests? Like, are they just a whiz at time and calendars? Then let's use time and calendars to help them understand the schedule. Do they have a specific interest that we can set up in terms of engaging them in this new environment that'll make their anxiety go down? So however we can match the weaknesses to scaffold with the strengths that they have is how we want to kind of mesh those two things together to create the best plan for them. I love that. It's fantastic action steps. I think, you know, I want everybody who's listening to know, like, you're not alone. If you're going through this struggle of, of, you know, figuring this out, like Emily does this full time guys, like with a full caseload. Yeah. With a full caseload. I mean, this is, this is not something that like, oh, like, 
why is this happening with, you know, to me and nobody else understands kind of thing, whether you're a teacher who's going through the, you know, this kind of struggle, a parent is going through the struggle. Like there are people around who get it. I do want to encourage you that if you don't have a community, uh, please reach out to us directly. Um, hello at masteripcoach.com. We can help you get connected. We're going to have links for Emily so you can get connected there. If you found yourself nodding your head to this, like, yep, yep. And I need to do that. And I need to do that please leave a review. A five-star review does a ton to help this information get out to more parents, more teachers, leaving a comment, doing those things. It makes a difference. And that's the best way that you can support the Special Education Inner Circle podcast is just by engaging and leaving a review. Emily, um, one last tip. Let's give everybody a bit of encouragement um, as we are in this pure exhaustion from years and years and years of right now, it feels like, right? Well, it has been many years of just transitioning and newness and new rules and new things that are happening. Um, everybody's tired. Do yeah. you have some uh, words of motivation for our parents, our teachers um, on just what um, they can do next? Right. So I know all the teachers listening, I know that you feel like you need a counseling degree and a law degree to be a teacher right now. I get that. Um, and it, there's some really unfair things happening and how the, you know, the kind of the big picture structure of um, teachers' lives right now. So I, I hear you. I see you. Um, you may feel like you're the only person in your building who is maybe thinking about things from a relationship perspective, but you are not the only one. Um, there's probably at least one of you in every school out there. And so I talk to you all the time, and I know that there's a growing passion for wanting to connect with students and understanding that the connection and the relationship lowers anxiety, lowers these difficult behaviors that we see in our students and, and brightens their access for learning. Um, I want you to remember um, why you're a teacher. You know, I know that it's, there's a lot of things that you're doing that are not rooted in that why of being a teacher that have been very distracting. I know over the last couple of years, but keep coming back to that spark. Um, many teachers I talk to will say it's that moment that you see it in a child's face when the skill clicks with them and they look at you like they're so grateful that you just taught them how to do that. And they feel that internal gratification of doing the thing for the first time. So what is your why? That often will be why we get up in the morning despite some of the noise of all the things and all the paperwork and all the stuff that we have to do. Um, and I'm paraphrasing this, but I'll just leave you with the Maya Angelou quote that is that people will not necessarily remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I think that that's very true of all the teachers and all the teachers we remember having we don't remember what they said to us, but we absolutely remember our favorites and the ones that made us feel safe and feel supported so that we could take that risk to learn something new. Absolutely. On that note, everyone, thank you for being here today. And we'll see you next time on the Special Education Inner Circle podcast. Thanks, Thanks Emily. Thanks for having me.